0: I want to start this morning by giving you a little bit of testimony, really. And hopefully, hopefully, um, giving you a little bit of a chuckle this morning. So most of you guys know, I think, that I'm a bit of a comic book nerd. Do you know that? I've, I, I've mentioned it reasonably regularly. Um, I love Marvel comics. In particular, I love the stuff from around the 50s up to about the 90s, maybe even the late two, uh, early 2000s. Now, me telling you that is one thing but they say a picture is worth a thousand words, so I thought I'd give you this little laugh and show you a short video of how much of a nerd I actually am slash was. Um, Joe's gonna play this. Got any audio on that one? If there's no audio, that's fine, I can narrate it. i collecting comic books because cool. uh, I just read one out of the blue that was to do with Spider-Man, and, um, I enjoyed what I was reading and I enjoyed the world that you can go into when you're reading comic books. Uh, my collection is very big, it's too big to go in one room really, there's <laughs> all comic books, I've got figurines, I've got DVDs, there's just loads of stuff, graphic novels I've got which is sort of comic books but lots of issues bound together in like a hardback, so I've got quite a lot of those as well, bookcase full of those. So it's. I would have to guess I've got over a thousand comic books themselves. Oh boy. Oh boy. You can ask a question, Maureen. Have, yeah, have I had deliverance? <laughs> yeah. That's, that's actually the after meeting, all right? So yeah, feel free to, to come pray for me. Um, wow. Wow. I, showed th- I dug that out of my laptop, and I showed it to my wife this week. I said, babe, I said, come and have a look at this. I'm going to show this to my beloved church family. I said, they're going to have a chuckle about this. She went, "Oh, weren't you handsome then? <laughs> Sh- yeah, sure. i take that as a compliment, I think. <laughs> um, you can probably see from that clip, uh, I had a lot of comic books. Um, I, I always say I basically carry, carried Marvel for like 15 years, like when there was no Marvel films, nothing, I was the one flying the flag and telling everybody how great they are. So really, I should get some of the royalties, I think. Uh, no one seems to be replying to my letters and emails, but it's fine. Um, <laughs> part of my testimony, though, is that that guy that you saw up there had made a commitment to Jesus, okay? Okay. But he had stopped going to church. So he wasn't going to church. He, it's me. I wasn't going to church. Um, I really wasn't hanging out with any Christians at all. I wasn't interested in engaging with other Christian people at that point. And in fact, um, I put all of my time and my energy into that comic book collection. Uh, Another interesting fact about that little video is that it was done uh, for a friend of mine who wanted to do a piece for uni. Um, what I didn't realise is that she was going to pair me with a man that just collected toy fire engines um, and a lady that's got the weirdest doll collection you've seen outside of a horror film. So that's the kind of <laughs> that's what I was that's what I was being added into. What you didn't see is that I also had like reference books and. Um, encyclopedias and um, a thing called the Marvel Book of the Dead, which basically describes every character that's died and come back to life in the comic books. This is seriously nerdy stuff. (laughs) I know the origin of most of the Marvel characters. I can tell you what their powers are, where they came from, who they're stronger than. I, I know it. The issue is, I think, that I wasn't going to church, so comic books became my Bible. And those reference books became like my commentaries. And then I got a job working just down the road in what was Wimble Market on a Sunday, selling, guess what, comic books. Uh, I was employed by a chap there. I didn't get paid, per se. I got given comic books. So my Bible was my comic books, my reference books were my um, commentaries, and then really my Sunday morning was filled with the same thing. So my church was kind of my comic books as well. And I may have told you this as part of my testimony before, that one day I was driving along to my other job, my mechanics job, during the week. And I heard God's voice and he said to me, you need to go back to church. And I was like, whoa, whoa. that scared me. I heard a voice inside my car. But when that happens, you're either going completely mad or you need to do something about the voice. Actually, you probably need to do something about the voice either way. But I definitely know it was God's voice telling me that I needed to go back to church. And there was a whole host of reasons why the prospect of doing that was terrifying terrifying and unappealing to me at the time. But one of the most surprising realizations I had was that I didn't want to give up this Sunday job. I loved being in the market, and I, I had sparked a real friendship with the guy I worked with. And I loved all of my access to those comic books. They were my world. Yet I knew I'd heard the voice of God. And as I contemplated what being fully obedient to God meant, I knew I was going to have to sacrifice some stuff. I was going to have to cut myself off from some of the things that brought me pleasure and happiness. And in the end, when I realized I didn't even own an actual Bible anymore, and I recognized in my spirit that my comics had become some sort of idol. I realized I had to do something about it because the pleasure of reading them, collecting them, and studying them was itself leading me away from God, pulling me away from where I should be. And I knew I'd stumbled and I'd fallen and I was in sin and I had to cut that stuff out. And step one was to quit the job that I loved on a Sunday. Step two was to disconnect from my friend and I realized that as much as I enjoyed this guy's company, he wasn't helping me in my walk with Jesus. He was walking a very different way and he was trying to pull me that way. And I have to tell you, that was, it was awkward and it was a bit painful because I had to explain to him, hey, I'm not going to be working with you anymore because I'm going to church on a Sunday morning. And then I said, and actually, I don't think I'm going to be able to hang out with you so much because I think we want very different things and we're going different ways. And then finally step three was to just box all of those comics up and just put them away. Now I could have burned them, I could have sold them, I could have given them away. But actually I I felt in my spirit that God said, these are not the issue. This is the issue. Your heart is the issue. And one day you'll be able to enjoy these with your kids, but not now. And so I put them all away and didn't touch them. And I got myself a new Bible and I read it from cover to cover and I began to study it. And I began to get commentaries. And I began to look into God's word and realize, actually, this book is a bit like my comic books. This book is about a single superhero who is more powerful and is more heroic than any comic book hero has ever or will ever be. And as soon as I realized that, that was it. I was hooked. So what's the point of my story then? Well, the point is I had to make some changes in my life in order to be obedient to God. I had to acknowledge the sin in my life. I had to repent, and that means I had to cut some precious things out of my life. I haven't told you this story because it's a big deal in itself. There are many, many, many Christians who have done far more radical things to be obedient to God than me. But I had to do it. It was important to me. And I'm telling you this story because in hindsight I've learned that this attitude of obedience to God in cutting sin out of our lives entirely, that's got to be an ongoing daily activity as much as it needs to be outworked in some of those bigger decisions like I had to make. And we're going to look at how strongly Jesus feels about our attitude to sin by looking at Mark chapter 9 verses 42 to 50. So if you've got your Bibles, let's go there. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at what Jesus says about leading others to sin. What Jesus says about sinning ourselves. And what Jesus says is the answer. So let's look at our first section. What Jesus says about leading others to sin. Now I just want to remind us of a little bit of context. Jesus has been rebuking the disciples a little bit. Because they were arguing over which of them was the greatest. That's happened just previously. And he's told them, you guys, you've got to have a completely different worldview to everyone else. He says that in his kingdom, anyone who wants to come first or be the most important must put themselves last. And whoever wants to be the greatest must be the servant of everyone. So he takes some principles of the world and he flips them upside down entirely. And then in verse 36 and 37, he says this. Then he put a little child among them and taking the child in his arms, he said to them, anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes not only me but also my father who sent me. This is a little bridge text, to the one we're gonna look at. And Jesus is doing two things. He's pointing out the low status of that child in that culture. So remember, if you want to be first, you've got to be last, and that means recognizing and welcoming people who are counted as least. And he's also probably likening that child to people who have a newer faith or at least a very childlike faith. They've just heard the good news and they've received it. And in one sense, that's all of us as believers, isn't it? We've just heard that good news and we've believed it in our hearts. And he combines this picture of either an actual child or someone who has received him with childlike faith. And he picks it up in verse 32, uh, 42 of chapter nine. And that's where we start our passage. And he says this, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Wow. One of these little ones, remember, is either a child or someone who's received the kingdom of God with a childlike faith. Now what Jesus is talking about here is a bit like, imagine cycling along a cycle path with your friend, okay? And then all of a sudden, you intentionally grab a stick, and you shove it through the front spokes of his bike. That's going to knock him off, isn't it? That guy's going straight over the handlebars, probably. It's going to cause him serious injury and damage. And at worst, if he hits his head, he could lose his life. At minimum, by shoving a stick in someone else's spokes, you've derailed them. You've knocked them off course. And you've stopped them from making progress on the path they were on. It's not a small thing. It's serious. And it's this seriousness of this action that Jesus emphasizes in this verse. And there's a series of pretty hard things that Jesus says in this passage. But I tell you what, it must have stung the disciples pretty hard. Because they're guilty of this exact thing. Of shoving a spoke in their friend's bike and causing them to stumble and fall. Because they've been leading one another in sin they've been arguing about which one of them is the greatest you can imagine the conversation who do you uh who do you think's greater is it peter is it john who is it just that conversation is stirring up ungodly attitude and leading one another into sinful actions once again, Jesus speaks directly to their hearts. It's as if he says to the disciples, watch out. Because when you do that, when you lead someone else into sin, it's so serious that it would be better for you to have a weight tied around your neck and for you to be thrown into the sea. That is serious. You've got to think about what he's saying. You can't soften Jesus' words here. You can say, well, Jesus is using hyperbole. He's using a a, a very exaggerated language to explain it. Yeah, he is. He's He's not actually saying that that should be the punishment for someone. What he's saying is the reality is worse. It would be better if. Do you see what that means? If he says it would be better if, then there's something worse is the reality. Jesus isn't messing around. And I think when I was reading through this passage, I thought what's scary is if it's better for someone to have this weight around their neck and be thrown into the sea if they've led someone else into sin. What is the worse? What's the worst fate that Jesus is trying to explain? And Jesus picks that up in the next section and we'll look at it. But the answer is he talks about hell. Now, if you're anything like me, that should absolutely horrify you immediately we are uh we're wanting to push against that and we should do we should be because if we've declared that jesus is our lord then like the disciples we've been set apart to follow him and yet jesus gives both them and us this warning but with the warning he also gives the solution As he says, the key to avoiding leading other people into sin is to deal with sin in ourselves first. And that takes us to our next section. What Jesus says about sinning ourselves, verses 43 to 48. He says this, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not turn and the fire is not quenched. I can't soften Jesus' words to you this morning. I can't say I don't really think He meant that. We'll unpack why we don't see Christians going around lopping off limbs, But the point is, what Jesus is saying, the impact, is designed to make us think. And this section about sin in our own lives, if we take my story about you know, shoving a spoke in someone else's, uh, a stick in someone else's spokes. This is like cycling along merrily on your own bike, grabbing a stick and shoving it in the front of your own bike. You've sabotaged yourself. Sure enough, you're gonna go over the handlebars and the results will be the same. It's got the real potential to cause serious injury and damage. At a minimum, if we do that, we've derailed ourselves, knocked ourselves off course, and prevented ourselves from making progress on the path we're on towards God. And at the very worst, in Jesus' own words, the worrying thing is it could cost us our lives when we do that. It's not a small thing. Now there are two things happening in these verses. One of them is a very clear principle and a very practical application. And the other is this warning. And we're gonna deal with the the principle and the application first, and then we'll unpack the warning. So the point of this section is really, really simple. The answer to sin in our lives is to cut it off wherever it is leading us. If you think about, again, my cycling analogy, cutting off sin means throwing away the stick. If you throw away the stick, you can't trip yourself up and you can't trip up your friend. Do you understand? So far, so simple. But Jesus isn't talking about sticks and spokes. He's, he's talking about hands and feet. And that makes it more complicated. Now, Jesus' language is intentionally graphic. It's supposed to grab your attention. It's supposed to be shocking. It's supposed to get you thinking. It's not supposed to be taken literally. Literally. The images of a hand and a foot and an eye help us visualize or relate to some different areas of sin that we probably do struggle with. You can see that the hand helps us to think about our actions. That's the sinful things that we actually do. The foot relates to sinful circumstances we place ourselves in. That relates to where we go. And the eye reminds us of those sins like lust or envy that are triggered by what we see. But Jesus' picture or the the picture Jesus is painting goes deeper than just recognizing these areas of weakness because there's the language of leading and that means there's following involved. If your hand causes you or leads you to sin, cut it off. That means if your hand causes you to sin, it's leading you somewhere and you've got to do something about it to stop that. Like my story at the beginning My job at the market and my relationship there, and my investment in my comic books, the things that made me happy. They were leading me away from God, preventing me from doing what I should be doing, inciting in me more and more sin. I had to cut them out and get rid of them. Jesus is clear about how we are to deal with these things. He calls us to be ruthless, to be precise. And to be permanent with our response to the things that lead us to sin. Again, think about that language of the cutting off an arm or a foot. You can't sew those back on. That's done. Yeah, and it's, it takes real intentionality. These are the things that Jesus is trying to provoke in us as we hear this. I can testify that it has been better for me to cut some things out of my life. That, were, that, that made me happy in order that I know I'm receiving the greater blessing of God in them. And they're just small things in one sense, but there's a great blessing that I've received in response from God. On the one hand, we have the infinite comforts and pleasures of God, and on the other hand, we have those momentary things that give us pleasure or happiness right now. That's what's in the balance. There is a little, another little caution that I want to just throw out of this moment. Because although what Jesus asked us to do is to recognize those areas in our lives where we are led into sin. And where we follow the lead of something else. The danger is, is that we think that, ah, well, in that case, the sin comes from outside me. All I have to do is, is just keep cutting things off out of my life and then I'll be fine. The problem is our sin doesn't originate outside of ourselves. It doesn't come from external things. It comes from an internal thing. James chapter 1, 14 to 15 puts it this way. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So sin is both conceived and birthed inside of us. That's the image of childbearing, isn't it? That happens on the inside of a mother, not on the outside. From within us. When our own desires are tempted and lured and twisted by us against God, then sin comes. Jesus has already said in Mark chapter 7, that we've already looked at, that what defiles a person is not on the outside but what's on the inside. It's what's in the heart that is the heart of the matter. We've got to deal with sin in ourselves some of the stuff we've got to cut off is in our very own hearts we have to come before god and allow him to put his finger on those things because outward change like cutting yourself off from people or places or activities that might bring us pleasure otherwise it's no good it doesn't have any value to us if it isn't preceded by the inward change that the holy spirit brings If it's not pioneered by us seeking to want to live a life that's holy and pleasing to God. Otherwise, we're just doing things that look good to other Christians. And that's just works. That's not not how we get right with God. So the principle then in this section is that we need to be ruthless with sin in ourselves and with sin in our lives. Firstly, by dealing with the root of that sin in our own hearts and that means confessing it to God, repenting, turning around and choosing not to walk that way and then by removing those things in our lives that lead us or cause us to sin no matter how happy they make us, how pleasurable they are or how necessary they seem. So my application for you this morning out of this section is this. Is there... Is there sin in your heart that you need to confess to God and repent of? Are there things in your life that are enabling or causing or leading you towards sin and away from God? Are there specific things in your life like ways of thinking or behaving? Activities and maybe even relationships? Desires? preferences are there things that you know God is calling you to cut off or to cut out of your life and are you prepared to make that kind of a sacrifice and you don't do that in a vacuum Jesus hasn't looked down from heaven and said what would be great is if you guys made some really big sacrifices for me and I'll just sit up here and watch. Jesus came down from heaven, took on the form of man, and sacrificed his whole self for each one of us. How can we do any less? How can we do any less? I want to be honest with you. I've had to work this through, even in preparing this preach. I can't preach this message and and not apply this to myself. And guess what? There's been things that God has said, you need to cut that out. There are things in my behavior and the ways of thinking that I have that I've realized are no good. They lead me towards sin and away from God. I need to cut them out. As I said earlier, though this is an ongoing process of continually submitting every area of our lives to God and asking him what's good and godly and what's not. We've got to keep doing it. Keep cutting off things that lead us to sin. Keep choosing the way of Christ. This is a call this morning to holiness for each and every one of us. A call to set ourselves apart daily for Jesus alone. So what about the warning in this section? The harsh language. So cutting off parts of your body, that's imagery, but it does mean something significant to us. But there's the other language. There's the language about fire and hell. What do we do with that? Well, the first thing to say is that it's easy to read these verses and think that can only apply to unbelievers. I don't need to read that. I don't need to register that because it's not for me. Because in and through Jesus, we've been saved from our sins and and their consequence, which is hell, right? And that is absolutely right and true. I want to, if you hear nothing else this morning, let me affirm that to you. But here's the thing. This warning isn't primarily addressed to unbelievers. Jesus wasn't teaching the crowd when he taught it. He was teaching his disciples, his followers. And now by extension, he's teaching us. This warning is about the severity of sin and the fact that if we allow ourselves to become hardened by it, we may find ourselves on the wrong side of God's judgment. Verse 48, where Jesus talks about uh, hell is basically the same quote from Isaiah sixty-six twenty-four where he talks about a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In Isaiah, he's sharing a picture of the day of God's judgment, and it's from the perspective of God's faithful people. That's the people who have been saved from God's judgment. His victorious uh, family who are united with him in victory. Over who? Over the prideful, sinful, rebellious people of the nations. And those who considered themselves part of God's kingdom, who considered themselves to be part of God's family, but in their actions and in their heart attitude towards God, they were not. In Isaiah it says, And they looked upon the fate of both the sinners and those who considered them part of God's people. But in reality, they weren't. So whilst it's absolutely true that when we declare Jesus as our Lord and Savior, our sins are forgiven and we are saved from the punishment we deserve, part of what it means for Jesus to be our Lord and Savior is that we continually submit ourselves to him. And we ask him to point out the sin in our lives. That's part of that relationship. Otherwise, we can become hardened to our sin. And we're in danger of missing the kingdom of God. And instead, finding ourselves under his judgment. And what that really means is that our heart has never really been forgotten in the first place. And I take that seriously because I think some of these people... Genuinely thought that they were in the kingdom, part of God's people. But they allowed sin to take hold, to take control, and to lead them. And as it turns out, their heart wasn't for God. Remember that your actions are an overflow of what's in your heart. And that should help us be aware. It should prick our conscience and say... I don't want that to be me. I want to make sure that my heart is for God. And therefore, I want to submit it to him. And I want him to put his finger on those things that need to be changed. Does that make sense? I know I'm driving this point, but I want us to get the warning that's in Jesus' words. I don't want us to skip over it. I'm so grateful to God that even though I thought I was in his kingdom, but I walked away from him and went my own way, he still had his hand on me. Because I think I could have ended up like some, one of those people who thought they were in but weren't. When I wasn't going to church, when I wasn't having fellowship with other believers, I wasn't reading my Bible, I wasn't praying, I still thought I was, you know, I'm doing it right, God. You're nowhere in my life, but I'm, you know, I'm in. I know I'm in. It's only God's activity in my life that saved me. That pulled me back. Let's look at the final section. What Jesus says is the answer to all this. So we've looked at the negative aspects of leading others to sin and how we should react and deal with sin in our own lives. But now we're going to see what Jesus says we can do positively and proactively to combat it in the first place. Verse 49 and 50. He says this, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Pretty sure it wins the prize for the most mentions of salt in one (laughs) verse in scripture. Jesus is bringing a link here between the fire that he was talking about in the previous bit and the salt that he wants to talk about now. And he says that all believers, everyone, will be salted with fire. What on earth does that mean? What a strange phrase. Well, in the Old Testament, salt was used as a symbol for God's enduring promises and covenant to his people. In fact, many of the Old Testament sacrifices that reminded people of their relationship to God and his promises included the practice of adding salt to the sacrifice. If you add salt to the sacrifice, you're remembering God's covenant. When the the lamb and the goat were offered up, some of them had to have salt added. When the bull was slaughtered, it needed to have salt added. That's the atonement sacrifices. That's how we were made right with God. That was the symbol for that. And God's promises are like sprinkled over it like salt. I think that's beautiful. And one of those sacrifices was a grain offering. And that was slightly different. Because it wasn't about God dealing with people's sin. It was an act of their worship to God. They took something that was of value in their lives, the harvest, and they gave some of it back to God in recognition of his provision. And they sprinkled salt on it to remind themselves of all God's promises spoken over them. So on the one hand, we have the salt that symbolizes God's covenant faithfulness, and on the other hand, we have a sacrifice of worship from the people of God, and those two things come together and are joined by the fire of the altar. And in terms of how this outworks for us, Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So on the one side, you have God who has covenanted or promised to give us eternal life in Jesus. So now he provides the salt. And on the other hand, we have our lives, which we get to offer up as living sacrifices to him. And the Bible teaches that our lives are going to be tested with fire, right? Those trials and tribulations, difficulties and adversities that we face, the Bible talks about them in terms of fire being refined. So salt and fire and sacrifice meet in our lives to glorify God and to remind us of his eternal promise of salvation for us. And that is the foundation for living proactively and positively as a Christian. When we remember those things, when we view our lives as a living sacrifice to God. Then Jesus changes the focus to another type of salt in scripture. He says, salt is good as long as it has flavor. In Matthew 5, 13, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But like this verse it says, but if salt has lost its taste, How shall its saltiness be restored? And it answers the question. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. God has made us to be salt in the world. We we get to bring the flavor of God's kingdom wherever we go. And we carry with us those promises sprinkled over us. But Jesus reminds us of the warning from the previous section. If we're made to be salt and bring flavor to to the world, but we lose that flavor through sinfulness, what is it good for? The answer is it's not. Jesus' final instruction to us on how to be proactive and positive about living a life that pleases him and deals with sin is that we should have salt in ourselves or be salt or be salty. I want to close with this. John Piper puts it like this and I love the way he says it. John Piper says, I suggest that being salty as a Christian means at root being so profoundly satisfied by Christ as our eternal reward that we are freed from fear and greed for the sacrifices of love while rejoicing even at persecution. Having salt in us means we are so satisfied with God that it doesn't matter what he asks of us doesn't matter what he asks us to cut off or sacrifice we are glad to do it because of the greater riches and reward that he has in store for us in eternity and therefore we don't count anything so precious that we won't lay at his feet as an act of worship as we strive for holiness and to be salt in the world if i could have the worship team up I appreciate that this passage is not an easy one to receive. But that's the point of God's word. Jesus said things that are hard to hear because they're good for us. And a lot of the time, the truth spoken in love is going to provoke us. So I want to ask you again this morning, is there a moment where you need to submit afresh to God? And ask him what things are leading you to sin maybe. Is there anything that God's calling you to cut off from your life? I want you to take time to respond in prayer. Have you jammed a stick in someone else's wheel or your own? Do you need to deal with God for that? I'm gonna hand over to the worship team and I would like us within our worship to come before our heavenly father and just let him Speak to us about those things. I'm going to pray, and then these guys are going to lead us. God, I want to thank you that you care for me so much, that you give me these warnings, that you give me these encouragements to pursue holiness and self-sacrifice for you. I pray, Lord, that you help me to lay things down at your feet as an act of worship so that I might be more like you. I thank you that you went before me and you sacrificed everything for me. And I'm inspired and I'm blessed and I'm honored and I'm encouraged to lay everything down for you. So Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning. Would you speak to each one of us? Would you shape us and mold us and make us more like you in our characters, in our behavior? in our thinking, and the way we speak. Lord Jesus, come and do your work in our hearts. Help us to receive it with joyfulness, and with thanksgiving, even though it's a hard word to hear. We ask that in Jesus' name.